promised last Sunday that we weren't going to go through Second Peter, and here we are. It's the next section, but I'm going to really steel myself against not finishing the book next week. Mostly because I preached out of that last chapter of Second Peter last year, and it's just too recent. But this next section, um, have been coming up in conversations that I've been in, and that's always a, a pleasant uh, reminder that people need to know something from the scriptures. When they're in a conversation with you and they bring it up, or you bring up the passage to them, it's good to go back and look at it formally. But let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your continued mercies to your church, to us as individuals. We'd ask that we would put that which you put first, first. That we be protected from false teachers in your son's name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> what we uh, have been aware of in the Peters, is there has been, he's writing to distant Christians who are trying to be protected against persecution and being led astray. And while we do not, like that hymn we sang this morning um, that had the, you know, lying on beds of ease thing, and could we be persecuted really for the faith? It's almost hard to go get someone in the United States to persecute you. You'd have to, you know, throw tracks at them with a brick inside it, and they'd get annoyed, and they'd hit you, and you'd say, oh, persecution. My father's trying to get persecuted before he dies because he feels like he's failed unless he gets reviled. So go by sometime and revile him. So we have a little to relate to in 1 Peter on, on some of the issues. It has a real benefit. But here, the warning to the Christian church about who we listen to. We had a uh, dinner the other night for some young people, and uh, sometimes I type up a conversation menu where they, with their place card, which tells them what the food menu is, they also have a conversation menu that maybe seven questions that if you, get, if you find that you have nothing to talk about except, what do you young people talk about these days, hacky sack? Um, I don't know. Um, something interesting and a, a feast of reason, I'm sure. But say that topic dies out, this one, one of the ones was, how do we view greatness in, the, in Christian history? How should you view greatness in Christian history? And we sometimes look at famous people in Christian history. We consider them great in Christian history, and we studiously avoid reading anything about them so we don't find out what kind of people they were. I always use the line when someone was speaking of John Knox, he was not very Christ-like, but he was good for Scotland. And we sometimes get our categories mixed up and we find ourselves admiring famous people in the Christian faith who were not good Christians, but they were famous for some reason. 
And part of the danger is not just how you view history. This is not a sermon on how you view Christian history. It's a sermon on how you, how you listen to people. A part of it is you say, well, we're listening to you right now. I'm beginning to be suspicious. Are you setting it up so, oh, the only person that actually fulfills all this criteria is Evan. What a remark. This is how the cults begin. So I'll try to apply it to me as well so that you are equally suspicious of me. The end of, we didn't cover the last verse of chapter 1 of 2 Peter last week, but verse 20 says, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now, that lays out there like a, what's that for? It's kind of brick-like. It's just sitting there. And you're almost thinking, well, you know, oddly, Evan, discussions about prophecy are just the, the natural place where everybody throws in their interpretation. And you can almost spot their personality type by what kind of impulse they follow in interpreting prophecy. Gunn was saying yesterday, it's the worst thing that can happen in a conversation when someone says, oh man, I just had a weird dream last night. Because you know you're in for the next two hours of everybody sharing their weird dream. <laughs> Everybody gets into interpreting prophecy. But no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. It does not come by few following an impulse. If you're the prophet, it is not you, the prophet, having a burden on a certain subject, waxing, prophetic. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a real claim that someone would have to make. I believe the Holy Spirit of God has descended on this man. He is a prophet. What he says is incontrovertible. That's why they had tests for prophets in the Old Testament. That's why the prophets like Isaiah or Daniel or Ezekiel, Jeremiah, are such notable figures in our minds is because the Holy Spirit had descended upon a lot of, a lot of people claimed to be prophets in the Old Testament and weren't. A lot of the prophets had good jobs with the king as prophets, but they weren't prophets. Because, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people. He just tells you his, the fact that there is a real, the warning is, what are you doing to distinguish? How do you distinguish false and true prophecy? And again, I am not suggesting that, first off, we have people stand up and start saying, Thus saith the Lord, the Seahawks will win the division playoffs next. You know. There are people who think they are prophets. We're not talking about that. that this could apply to that. But... Peter walks further than us handling prophecy and us handling prophets. He's saying the prophecies happen by the impulse of the Holy Spirit, not the impulse of people. But that doesn't mean that there weren't people who took that impulse, false prophets. It was their own interpretation. It was their own impulse. 
they stood up and said, Thus saith the Lord. He says, That's happened. For us this morning, it's the second half of verse 1 of chapter 2, just as there will be false teachers among you. The warning to the church is just like there's a real grounding of prophecy in God, and real prophets fulfill a certain thing, and there were false teachers. So there is a real grounding in the teaching of the scriptures, and there are false teachers out there who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Okay, the problem we have this morning is we are being told there will be false teachers. We are told there are false teachers when apostles are standing around. What if Moscow, Idaho, in the evangelical church, a couple of the churches had one of the 12 apostles as pastor. You would think that would keep the town pretty squared away. But now, false teachers arise. They resist even the apostles. They even deny Jesus Christ. You will find, I read a story the other day, and it wasn't an Onion article. Um, it was some minister I believe he was PCUSA, and he was offended, because that's the stock and trade of everybody nowadays, offended that people wouldn't call him a Christian. He really, really guarded jealously that you would call him a Christian. The fact that he didn't believe that Jesus was God should not be a problem. He did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't believe that Jesus was God, and it really offended him that people wouldn't call him a Christian. We have, you say, well, that's pretty obvious. There are people who go to that man's church. Okay? Because it's in a church building, and he graduated from an important seminary, and he has credentials, and he'll say out in front of everybody, I don't think Jesus is God even denying the master who bought them. So, the problem is, we stand around as if we're the most gullible crowd on the planet. When it says, secretly bring in. False teachers don't present their witness card at the church door. Hello, I'm a false teacher. If you need any falsehood said, I will say it. The falseness is, is, is removed from their title. They will come in and announce themselves as teachers, but not as false teachers, because that's the secret part. There you go, right? Want to keep a secret? I'm not telling you the truth. Now you have to ask yourself, how stupid are we? I mean, we really are. I mean, you look at Christian history, I, I would hate to bring a, be a bearer of bad tidings. It's an unpleasant history. That was, I think I've mentioned before, that C.S. Lewis wanted to write a book one day. He didn't think he'd ever get around to it, where he confessed all the sins of Christianity. Where it was a history of all the bad things we did. 
The problem is, there is a basic mistake we make in how we value what we value out of teachers. Because we know it's going to be a secret, we know it leads astray many people, verse 2, and many will follow their licentiousness, and because of them the way of truth will be reviled. We know that's happened. We look at the end result, and we look at the way Christian teachers have what they have done to the faith, and non-believers can make legitimate fun of Christianity because of the way these people, both the teacher and the follower, have comported themselves. And many, so it's a secret, their falseness is hidden, it's going to be a subtext, and we will sometimes, we will talk to a, a Mormon and come away confused because they said faith, they said Jesus Christ. Those were magic words, right? Whenever we hear faith and love and the Trinity and Jesus and the resurrection and forgiveness and this guy's a false teacher when you might know in certain terms, but they're saying all the terms your ear likes to hear. We have to realize where the point of stupid is in us. We think we're being smart because we start thinking about theology. We think the answer is a theological apologetic against the Mormon. No, I learn enough about Mormonism, I can know it's wrong. Is that what it takes to know that Mormonism is wrong? That you learned enough about it or you lived near Utah? You get a hint. When this, remember, false teaching, like the false prophecies, were matters of one's own interpretation and following the impulse of man. We're not following the impulse of the Holy Spirit. You might want to scratch your chin and go, I wonder what the impulse of the Holy Spirit would be up to. What does the Holy Spirit impel? What do you say biblically? What does the Holy Spirit impel in us? Well, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Ah, really tidy list. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the impelling of the Holy Spirit. And oddly enough, we often don't think about goodness itself when we think about false teaching. Inside of Christianity, outside of Christianity, everybody wants to be measured in terms of their doctrine. And then we fight over who's right. And we point fingers at people who disagree with us because they're not right theologically. But the subtext of everyone's teaching is whether or not the Holy Spirit has moved them. Or are they making their career on the impulse of man? Are they making their career on the interpretation they can, you know, woo you with? Because remember, you're not being told it's a false teacher. They're out to exploit you with false words. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. From of old, their condemnation has not been idle, and their destruction has not been asleep. God's not fooled, but we're being fooled. 
But the exploitation, we think we're standing on the most solid ground because we think that falseness is registered in the world that we call orthodoxy. Corporate own interpretation. Corporate long-term impulse of Christendom. And if it's been around long enough, be it you're a reformational Protestant, so it goes back 500 years, and the Catholics look at you like, well, you're just pikers. We go back 2,000 years, long enough, and think that false teaching is defined by orthodoxy. Now, there is a right idea. False is false because it says a false thing. But look at what Peter is trying to draw your attention to. We follow their licentiousness. They exploit us with false words in their greed. Remember, if they're not being moved by the impulse of the Holy Spirit, they're being moved by their own impulse, and those are just as listable as the ones from the Holy Spirit. And oddly enough, it's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It's human urge. It's human vindication. It's human getting their way. Is the subtext in false teaching we're being susceptible to false teachers because we don't think of holiness? People will literally confessionalize their theological conclusions and they will write in stone, in some cases, their false teaching. Varying degrees of importance how false it is. I mean, the Mormons will say something really false. Jesus is just a man who made it. God is just a man who made it. You could be a god. It's really wrong. Versus you come over here to the Christian side, you got some wacky end times view that makes it into their statement of faith. You go to enough church ministries on the internet and you go to the statement of faith tab because that's all up there because that's how we prove to people we're not false teachers. And in my mind, you're just proving you are. There's, a, there's an intentional comment about something that's not true. <coughs> They perpetuate because everybody believes that the avoidance of false teaching is the church coming up with a list of things you ought to believe and you being held to believe it. But what if the exploitation happened before that document was drafted? Exploitation is trying to get something. Trying to get something out of you. Um, it may even say true things. Okay? Don't think that false teaching is defined by merely the doctrines coming from the pulpit being false. You ever listen to some of the Southern evangelists that you have a great disrespect for their personal lives? I used to listen to Jimmy Swagger. Now, Jimmy could preach. Jimmy could really preach. And when he preached the gospel, the gospel got preached. Well, he was a moral reprobate. Saying a true thing 
Because the false teacher is looking to exploit the saints to get the benefits someone moved by their own impulses wants to get. They end up sleeping with the women in the congregation. They end up rifling the till, preaching a health and wealth, give more money. They end up being greedy, licentious, and proud. Your basic three categories. And they could be doing that preaching true things. And they're false teachers for you because they're exploiting you to get that out of you. And you're following something that's false because it's not leading to holiness. We follow their, we end up following their licentiousness. They are setting up and you wonder sometimes you hear about a Christian church that seemed like it was all everything a statement of faith tab. I looked at that, it was great. And you'll live in it for a few years and you get to realize there's great and gross sin here. All being covered up, all being allowed. What I want to encourage you to think about is to think about holiness, righteousness, as the place that all teaching is trying to take you and if even true teaching, it doesn't seem to be taking the teacher to righteousness, watch out. You've got to get to righteousness. That's why Jesus died. is because we were evil. And we needed to be forgiven. And so he died for sin, once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, that we might live to God. That is what happened. That's the subject matter of our faith. God wants to destroy these false teachers. And he says in verse 4, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven other persons, when he brought a flood upon the world for the, of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction and made them an example to those who were to be ungodly. And if he re rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the wicked, for by what that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, he was vexed in his righteous soul day after day with their lawless deeds. Big list of bad people doing bad things. Bad angels too. Bad angels doing bad things. Good people being good, angels, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot. Take a look at this. It's all on the basis. The axis point is the godliness and the ungodliness. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Our concern, when we look around, as you go out into the world, people like Lauren is graduating from the university this year. She's going to go out into the world, probably work in, I don't know, Paris. There are a few ungodly people. Oh, well, okay, there's a lot. And there are a lot of churches that are a train wreck because the people aren't in love with the purpose of the gospel. 
They don't know what the gospel is. They don't know what the purpose of the gospel is. Their teachers are trying to teach them to be more holy. And the teacher themselves is very conscious maybe of their theology, very conscious of their tradition, very conscious of their liturgy, their culture they're creating, but not conscious of being good. God is for the good. Whatever you're into, whatever you say, I want you to commit to this, even if the rest of the Christian church deserts you on this. You say, I don't even think all souls Christian is really... Fine. Devote yourself to this. Say, God's goodness, God's holiness is where I wasn't and I am able, able to be in Christ and his Holy Spirit is impelling me in this. I need to be with others who are so impelled. If I can't find them, I can't find them. But the Lord will not leave you alone. He rescues the godly. You can see that through history. And he knows what to do about the ungodly. You can be sure. I don't have to go fix the church. You say, well, what are you doing here if all this sin is in Christendom? Well, not my job. God's going to judge it. I don't want to be them. I don't want to be hurt by them. I don't want to be that kind of pastor. And I don't want you to be that kind of parishioner. They will be punished very adequately. We need to know what we're looking at. I might not be able to fix the world, but I can certainly dodge the bullet. I make a comment on the side that that it's going to happen. It's happening in the apostolic church, happening in the first century church. And it's wrong, but it won't stop nor can you stop it. You could grab some false teacher functioning in your church and throw them out the door. And they'll just start another church. And real Christians will end up lining up behind it. We need to know what the standards are for us so that we, when we go before the Lord for his rescue, his, his compliment, The worst are these people who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And it's not the kind of despising authority that, you know, a teenager is about. Mom, I hate you. That's oh. a small, this is, these are big ticket items. It's described here in the next portion of the verse. Bold and willful, they are not afraid to revile the glorious ones. Now, that is your attitude or the false teacher's attitude to the powers. To the heavenly powers. Even the bad heavenly powers. The example given in Jude was even Michael the archangel did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment on Satan. Satan deserves your respect. He is bad. The Lord will judge him. You may not revile him because that idea is to revile the glorious ones. They're not afraid. They're not afraid. They despise authority. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a reviling judgment upon them before the Lord. 
That's why Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuked him. He would not revile the devil. If you don't remember the instance, it's in Jude, taken from the Assumption of Moses, which is a pseudepigraphal book. What's the other one? Defiling passion. They despise authority and they defile passion. Now one of the things about defiling, uh, despising authority is that it lifts up the person you are following, lifts up the teacher more. They become a more intriguing loom. They want you to not despise authority, oddly enough. Oddly enough, they want to become more authoritative in your life and they get there by tearing down all the other authorities, even the bad ones. Remember, they can have right doctrine. They can even abuse bad angelics. But both of those, you can be very, very wrong with both of those worked out. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed, reviling in matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in the same destruction with them. The them being the rebellious, glorious ones. Satan will be destroyed. When it says at the last judgment in, 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 in Revelation, people whose names are not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be tossed into the lake of fire, reserved for the devil and his angels. People in rebellion against God get what the devil and his angels got. These false teachers, operating by instinct, deserving nothing more than a bullet to the brain. Not to be caught and healed. Caught and killed, says St. Peter. Because they are difficult, they're not even beneficial animals. They're just animals who living on their instinct and urge. Suffering wrong for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their dissipation, carousing with you. Remember to not assess, oh, it's fine to look at someone's theology. But theology, right or wrong, has to produce holiness. And you've got to know what holiness is. They've got to represent the goodness of God. They've got to teach you how to find the goodness of God. They have got to have a doctrine that provides the goodness of God. Not, verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. You don't want to think that, but it happens. It happens in the church all the time. Years and years and years ago, back when Faith Fellowship was meeting at Green's Body in Paint, there was a church out in Palouse that everybody was going to. It was the happening church. I mean, everybody. But they liked Faith Fellowship all right, but this Palouse church, people were driving half an hour, 40 minutes to go to it. I don't even know what denomination it was. It was popular. Until it was found out the pastor was having affairs with 14 women in the church. The 14 women didn't know of the other women. And neither did the husbands. Who, when they found out, the pastor had to disappear from Palouse 
that night because there were husbands who were willing to go before the Lord with murder on their hands. I mean, literally. But it was the most... Oh, the Holy Spirit was really there. But it was somebody whose own interpretation, own impulses, disguised to make it secret from us that they were really moved by their animal instincts. Religion's a great place to get it out of people. Really, because our, our future, we're like big wide-eyed doe lambs. Give me, take my money. Take my time. Take my mind. I'll believe whatever you say. You need to hold goodness. Your eyes should narrow when you look at a, especially when, uh, When they offer themselves, I mean, oh man, nothing is. Yeah, you, you, you gotta have PR. You know, advertising is kind of. We don't advertise this church. And look, there's only about 35 people here. Maybe 40 if I counted them up and fudged numbers, rounded up. We don't advertise. Not even in the phone book. Maybe we should. Big picture of me, glossy, full page. Newspaper, kind of a you know, like from mid thigh up, maybe from chest up, so I, I could look more stirring. They come after us, these teachers. They want us to believe them, they want to, us to read their books a lot. I, I wonder if sometimes, and they would never come to you representing their bona fides in terms of holiness, even if they were, because you know that would be really awkward. Yes, I'm coming to you as a holy man. You go, I don't think holy men tell us that. So instead they tell us their qualifications, what books they've read, who they knew, who they talked to, how many books they have they've sold, every other measure. I worry about that. It doesn't mean that someone's bad if they advertise. But they're going to be advertising on other things. Maybe that they're just part of the problem. We're the other part of the problem. We're believing it on other things. Christian culture, orthodoxy, tradition, all those things become the thing advertised. That's where the center is. That's how I know something's true. The closer it gets to the way we've always done it. We should be looking, even if they can't afford to tell us because they're humble, we should be looking for who's going to lead us, the Christians, to be centered on the gospel and the work of the gospel in us, God's Holy Spirit in us, that is to make us righteous before him. We are getting conformed to the image of Christ. We should want teachers of every church in this town to be making everybody conform to the image of Christ. But not these guys, full of adultery, insatiable for sin, enticing unsteady souls. Think about how many people, you probably see it in cult situations, you know, somebody ends up following Charlie Manson and you go, okay, unsteady, yep. But unsteady souls sometimes 
don't process the idea of holiness well. They can process the idea of a strict catechism, confessional affirmation of something. They can process a strict tradition. They can find themselves in their unsteadiness, feeling more secure by the tradition you gave them, the liturgy you gave them, the statement of faith you gave them. And you want to lead them to righteousness. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Peter gets a little unwound or wound up on this. So does Jude. Jude's on the same subject. They're very, very similar. So using some of the same phrasing. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A dumbass spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. There's some hope. Sometimes you might think, I'm the dumbass speaking to the prophet, saying, quit being about this. Quit being about your view of the end times. Quit being about your view. You know, in my circle, I had a long conversation last night, too long, with a few people who do not hold my views, talking about some central elements of the difference. It was a lot of fun. But your doctrine of time is not the holiness of God. You could be right on that, and I am, but it's not the holiness of God. You don't want to end up being restrained. You don't want to be humiliated by a dumbass speaking to you. They are waterless. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved. You will see that the angels back at the beginning were put into the nether gloom. And then it says that these people are going to get the same destruction with them. And then it says, yep, they're going to the nether gloom. I don't know what that's like. I don't know where that is. It doesn't sound good. Okay? Netherness never does. Hitherness, you might like. Netherness, no. Gloom, I like foggy days, but this sounds worse than that. A darkness has been reserved. For uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice, with licentious passions of the flesh, men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. This is where the truth comes in. Galatians, remember the passage? You are called to freedom, my brethren. Is Paul one of those? Promising freedom is preaching the truth. But the problem is the Christian has to want holiness and hear the wonder of freedom in Christ. Because if I want sin and somebody promises me freedom, yowza, things are going to get wild. Because what does Paul say? Brethren, you are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. 
So what does that mean? I am in a state of freedom. It's going to be what kind of mindset do I have towards Christianity? Is my mindset one that wants to be holy, so freedom is this great opportunity? Or am I not somebody who wants to be holy? I just want to be theological. I want to be traditional. I want to be culturally Christian. No protection there. Freedom is just going to make you more licentious. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. So these teachers, when it comes out <clears throat> that they're not living the righteous life, and sometimes I hear Christians doing this, they're big followers of some so-and-so, and then they find out that they are, again, ran off of the organist or something, you know. Which I plan to do sometime, because I'm married to her, and I figure... I am allowed to run off with her. Just as Spokane, nothing far. Christians defending this person who is the head of their theological persuasion, people defending this famous person who wrote a lot of books, they can't bring themselves to give up. They start making it, they try to start to move the unspirituality, and sometimes so effectively, I've had to tell people. So-and-so, you know he was arrested for molestation. So-and-so, you do know he was arrested or his wife left him. People don't even know. Greg Bonson, the big mind, he's dead now. So His wife walked out on him with some of his best friend. How does a Christian teacher who is brilliant work that one out? By not loving his wife as Christ loved the church. That's how. But being about something else. Famous people, you've you know, been around Christian circles at all, you've heard the stories. They, they, they have PR people that push the whole unholiness out of the picture. It's gone, forgotten. Oh, we forgive, yeah, we forgive. But I don't put teachers back in the role, because false teachers are these kind of people. They can't control their insatiableness for sin. They want their PR agent to move it off the table and put it away be off the scene long enough and then they're back and this generation doesn't know or doesn't care because it's more important that their theology, their culture, their tradition, their orthodoxy, everything else check out. We think that's where false teaching is. The problem is that they are corrupt. They make us corrupt and that's why it becomes false. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. False teaching can lead you to places you can't get out of easily. You might have heard the gospel with a great relief from a college friend and you, and you said, I want this forgiveness. And you prayed and you asked the Lord to forgive you. It was easy. It was great rejoicing. And then you wandered in your Christian life to follow this kind of nonsense. And you end up back in that kind of sin. And there doesn't seem to be any way out. It's worse. You're humiliated. What we call rededication is not an easy 
easy thing. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. Part of that's repeated in Proverbs, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool that repeats his folly. You have to admit, it's not a pretty picture. Yes, those kind of people are dogs. They're like dogs. They're like pigs. Dogs and pigs are pretty smart animals, reasonably, compared to, I don't know, jellyfish. We can get along with pigs, and they make bacon. Dogs are man's best friend. But they eat their own vomit. Pigs spend their day lying in their own poo. What could be better? That's what people who haven't escaped the licentiousness, they haven't measured Christianity on the basis of good, they've measured it on the basis of content. I am not, I love theology, I love ideas, the content must support the holiness. It must have supported it in the teacher, and it must be the cause celeb of everybody listening to the teaching. That what they're wanting to know is how do I live to please Jesus Christ more and more every day? Because otherwise I'm going to return to my own vomit and yes, I'm but a dog. I'm, I'm a pig. What do we want? Do we want to be part of the most orthodox thing or do we want to be made holy? Christ did not look orthodox to anybody standing around. He was there to make us holy. So, do that. Let's thank God. Lord, we're grateful. Help us meditate on our purposes, our direction, our wants out of religion. We don't want to be fooled. We don't want to fool. Lord, protect these saints. Help them be an encouragement to their friends in the Lord from other bodies, that they would be encouraging them to be pursuing your holiness. That we would be good because of your Son. That we would be good because of the teaching. Keep us understanding what is true, but especially understanding why we want it to be true. Thank you for this morning in your son's name. Amen.